Ingles is a proud sponsor of On the Beat, hosted by Mike Griffith. Shop online with Ingles Curbside Pickup. New curbside stores opening every week. Please welcome Mike Griffith. Well, hey, everybody, Mike Griffith here. Welcome to tonight's Ingles on the Beat program. And uh, man, do I got a special show for you tonight. I can't wait. You guys are going to love it. Coach Spurrier is going to be joining us soon. He's going to be talking a little bit about Clemson, Kirby, Georgia, Tennessee, SEC expansion. Coach Spurrier touched all the bases for us tonight. And I really appreciate Coach Spurrier joining us. I think you're really going to enjoy that. So here we are. It's finally game week. All this entire offseason, we've been aiming towards the Georgia-Clemson game. What would it look like? What would it seem like? If you're Georgia right now, you're kind of like missing a couple guys, right? You were hoping maybe Dominic Blaylock could be back. You were thinking Tyke Smith would be this huge impact player from West Virginia. You think maybe Eric Gilbert could haunt these teams with his ability to make these downfield catches and his athleticism and Darnell Washington, a guy that had a dominant off season, six, seven, two seventy eight visions of Darnell trucking people. None of those guys are going to play in the game. It's not a full strength Georgia team. Now that's football and it's next man up. And it's the first game of the season and talking with John Fitzpatrick earlier today, he said they're ready. He said they're ready to go. And man, that was the first good news of the day. When John Fitzpatrick made that Zoom call, he said that is good news for Georgia. Not because he's a good interview. He's not. He doesn't try hard. In fact, I think John tries not to say anything. But he is one heck of a player. I don't know if you saw the ratings, but Cole Kubelik ranked John Fitzpatrick as the number five tight end in the SEC. And the reason why is because John Fitzpatrick is a conventional tight end. Now, when we talk about Brock Bowers, we call him a tight end, but he's really not. He's really more of an H-back. He's more of a matchup guy. He doesn't really manhandle the guys in the trenches like John Fitzpatrick can do in the running game and give you that true double threat, dual threat. So when I say John Fitzpatrick career highest four catches and 41 yards, and yet he's one of the most important pieces of the game, you might say, wait a minute, why is that? Well, because with John Fitzpatrick, you can run double tight end set. You can run that conventional tight end who can line up tight on the line and is still able to go out and catch passes. He's a six, seven target. I think he's improved his hands as his career has gone on. Safety valve kind of guy, a guy that you got to cover or a guy that can knock you on your butt. That's why coaches like these double tight end sets right? Because it kind of limits the personnel that the other team can put on the field. So with Fitzpatrick being healthy, that means that Clemson knows now, uh uh-oh, Georgia's going to have that double tight end component. We've got to have a defensive package for that. And it's one more card that Kirby and Todd Munkin can play. Because this is a game of matchups. You kind of haunt and pack and see what personnel packages work for you against the defense. How are they going to counter you? Where do you find an advantage? And that double tight end set is one of those packages that I know Georgia feels really good about. Because let me tell you something. The first key to this game that nobody's talking about, because we all thought that it was going to turn into a shootout. But the real, I think, real key to this game is Kendall Milton's ability to run the ball against that Clemson front. You know, Clemson gave up over 200 yards rushing to Ohio State last year. 
And I'm not sure why we're not convinced that someone like a Kendall Milton can't go for 100. Kendall's been the best back in the offseason now. You may wonder about Zamir or James Cook or Kenny McIntyre. These are all great backs. And, you know, maybe plug one of their names in there. But if I got to pick one based on what I've heard and based on the personality of that Clemson defensive front, remember, as Kirby talked about, fast twitch, quick, built to get after quarterbacks. I don't know how they'll handle a 220-pound moose like Kendall Milton. That's why I like him running into this Clemson defensive front. Now, the reason that's important, it's not like George is going to be three yards in a cloud of dust. I'm not buying that. But what they are going to do is they're going to be able to run the ball and have some balance. And if you've got some balance, it really puts the defense on their heels, really makes life a lot easier for JT Daniels, might even neutralize the pass rush a little bit. And if you can do that with a run game, it gives you a chance. I mean, think back to when Florida beat Georgia last year. You know, Florida had a little success running the ball without Jordan Davis in there. I believe that kind of unlocks some things for Kyle Trask. I really think the run game is an important element. Again, I don't think you're running on first down. I think if you're Georgia, we're going to see a lot of throwing on first down. I think James Cook is the starter. I think you're going to see James Cook have a big game. I'd say five or six catches. Maybe he goes over 100 yards between his rushing and his pass catching because Cook can run out of that draw. He can do some things with the jet sweep. So I expect James Cook, Kendall Milton, uh, Kenny McIntosh is going to be running back kicks, but he's another versatile player. Zamir White, we've seen him in short yards, a bit of a bull of a runner. Uh, those guys all factor in big. So that's my first key to the game is I like the Georgia run game here to open some things up. Conversely, Clemson was only 11th in the ACC in the run game last year, and that was with Travis Etienne, the first-round running back, and Trevor Lawrence, a quarterback, and still only 11th. I don't think Clemson can run the ball on Georgia. I think they're going to be one-dimensional. Now, two quarterbacks. I like JT Daniels over DJU, not because of what his pro potential is. You know, it's what is it right now? Talking about right now, this game. JT has been in front of 100,000 before. He talked about that today, the most nervous he's ever been. His freshman year against Texas, over 100,000, said you had to scream just for your running back to hear what you were saying when he was lined up. So JT's been, and I don't expect this environment to be close to that. This is one of those neutral site, Jacksonville, Charlotte, 50-50 fan, bowl game. It's not deafening. It's a different It's a different deal than what Notre Dame had to deal with at Sanford Stadium or what Georgia had to deal with before at Neyland Stadium. You know, so I think it's 50-50. But it's having all the eyes on you, network TV, big buildup. JT's been there before. He's got the scars to prove it. Okay. He's been on the big stage. JT can say it's one game. They lose. You move on. He can live with it. DJU, I don't think he's really been in this environment. Now, the Notre Dame game was big. He lost, by the way. He's, you know, that was a big, but it didn't have the crowd. And it wasn't like the only game that everybody, and now it's his team. Listen, DJU is a great guy. Had a chance to visit with his head coach in California. And Big Cinco is a, one of my favorites. In fact, I like Clemson football. I like Dabo Sweeney. Go back with Dabo. Got a lot of respect and appreciation for the coach he's become. I think he's fantastic. And uh, I think this is going to be a really tough X's and O's matchup for Kirby Smart. I think Clemson's going to do some things offensively that, that's going to challenge Kirby and Dan Lanning. I expect Clemson to score some points with their coaching. 
They're going to coach him up. They're going to do some things. I can promise you Clemson probably going to steal seven to 10 points in this game. Yet and still, I'm bullish on the George Bulldogs. I want to go down the uh, uh, injury list. And, you know, Coach Smart went through that a little bit with us today. I mentioned a moment ago, John Fitzpatrick is going to play. And, you know, again, if you told me I'd be carrying on and on about John Fitzpatrick playing in this game and how important it was, I'd have told you you were crazy. But when I look at the offense and the fact that Darnell Washington is out, he's the other tight end that can do all this stuff. Uh, it makes John Fitzpatrick just so important. Kyrus Jackson's probable to play. Kirby's told us Kyrus is back. Uh, we've seen him back. He was playing with a knee brace. The question I have is, uh, how effective can he be after the catch? I know he can make the catch. I know he's reliable. I know he's a lunch pail guy. He's going to be where he's supposed to be. But what can he do after the catch? This is something to keep an eye on. If he's not effective, maybe you see a little more Lad McConkey. Maybe Arian Smith gets a little run. Let's talk about Arian Smith. Maybe the fastest player in college football. I'll be interested to see how Kirby Smart and Todd Munkin use Arian Smith. This is a guy who can fly, runs the jet sweep. Uh, obviously, we've seen him on the deep ball. He missed some time in the offseason, though, because he was running track. And he's been a little beat up. He's had a little bit of an ankle, had a little bit. I think some Kirby said someone stepped on his toe one day. I mean, so what will Arian Smith do? Will he be any kind of an X factor? Certainly he's a guy Clemson will identify when he's on the field. Jalen Kimber, cornerback, another guy probable. You know, Jalen missed a scrimmage earlier this offseason. Wonder a little bit about that. If Jalen doesn't start, you're looking at maybe Keely Ringo or Amir Speed, two guys that really haven't had a lot of game experience. Now, Amir has been a reserve for many years. He's a veteran. He's had a pretty good offseason. I think we see him opposite Darian Kendrick, but I do think you're going to see some Keely Ringo and we'll see some Jalen Kimber. I'm just not sure how much Kirby hasn't really talked a lot about that. Warren Erickson, the center, a few weeks ago when camp started, first day, hurt his hand, has a cast on his snapping hand. What are we going to get from Warren Erickson? Kirby says he's been practicing. Didn't say where he's been practicing. I think you're still going to see Cedric Van Pran at center, Jamari Sellier at left tackle. And I think you're, you're going to see Erickson work his way into the lineup at guard, Justin Schaefer at left guard, Tate Rattledge at right guard. Maybe you see Erickson get some of those reps at guard behind one of those players. Of course, Warren McClendon, freshman All-American, is your starting right tackle. Uh, Tyke Smith. Now, Tyke, there's no doubt about it. Tyke is an impact player. Uh, this is a guy that plays that hybrid star position, half linebacker, half DB, strong enough to come up against the run, great open field tackler, but also effective in coverage. I think Tyke's out. I listed him as doubtful because I guess you never say never, but I think he's out. He's a guy that had surgery a couple of weeks ago. This is big. Georgia is really thin at that star position. Remember, Tyreek Stevenson transferred to Miami. Major Burns transferred to LSU. Mark Webb went pro. I mean, boom, there's three guys gone, three potential starters. And then the guy you recruit, Tyke Smith from West Virginia, to fill the spot, he's gone too. So you're four down at that spot. That means Latavius Brini or Dan Jackson probably going to get some reps there. We'll see what happens with that. I think Brini probably gets first go. We saw Brini against Cincinnati. Played a decent game against the Bearcats, um, but no one's going to confuse him for Richard LeCount. Darnell Washington, we talked about Darnell earlier. Uh, doubtful, I think really doubtful. I would almost say out, but again, one of those never say nevers. This is a guy that had surgery. Darnell with those big gloves, I'll tell you, it gets downfield, lumbering, stumbling, 
285. Man, when he's back in the lineup, George is going to be something else. And then Dominic Blaylock. Last we heard from Kirby, Dominic was just running straight line. We haven't really heard anything more. It would be a shocker to me if he was in the game. Again, I never say never, but another guy that once he's back, that George Arsenal gets so much better. And, of course, George Pickens, right? George Pickens, a guy that uh, I don't expect back until at least late October. So setting the table for you there. I like George to win this game. I uh, gave you all the reasons why. And uh, now I want to take a break here. I want to take a break. When we come back from this break, Steve Spurrier is going to join us. We're going to get Steve Spurrier on the line. I think you're going to enjoy hearing from Coach Spurrier. Uh, you know, I think he's a legend. I think he's someone that you kind of always knew what to expect when you played a Steve Spurrier team. There's something to be said for people and products that consistently meet your high expectations. And that's something that Ingalls has done. You think about it, even during the pandemic with all the challenges and the crisis mode that we were all in, we always knew that we could count on Ingalls. That hasn't changed. Ingalls still the place you can go that you can count on. Let's take a moment to recognize our sponsor Ingalls. It's in our hearts to feel for there's been ups and downs, turnarounds, there's good days and some bad. But we stand together for worse and for better. We'll always have your back. With open arms, heart to heart, hand in hand. Community strong. Welcome back to the program. Really excited and pleased. Uh, to bring on seven-time SEC Coach of the Year, two-time ACC Coach of the Year, 1996 national champion, former Heisman Trophy winner, Steve Spurrier. Coach Spurrier, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, Mike, good to be with you. This is a good one now. This is interesting. You know, a lot of Georgia fans, they know all about Steve Spurrier. Uh, Coach, Coach Spurrier, two and two against George as a player. I, I want to go back in the Wayback Machine for just a minute. Because Coach Dooley ran a pretty good program at Georgia. What do you take away? What are your memories of your time as a player against the Georgia Bulldogs in that rivalry? Oh, we were sort of fortunate to win uh, one my junior year, uh, but they were all pretty close games. Uh, the big one, uh, we had a chance to win the SEC if we could have beat them my senior year, but they uh, they put a good second half beat beat down on us. Uh, we didn't score, and they ran the ball pretty well and got some interceptions. Lynn Hughes, their safety, uh, had a pick six against me. So anyway, they beat us uh, my senior year, and I had to wait till I became a football coach to to beat them a few times. Well, coach, you did. In fact, I would I would go so far as to say you terrorized Georgia as well as Tennessee, as well as a lot of teams well, being dominated in the 1990s. I mean. 11 and one against Georgia. I mean, that's, it's really a remarkable uh, run of success against any program, much less a rival. What did that rivalry, and I know the Gators have Florida state as a rival as well, but what did that rivalry mean to you against Georgia's head coach? Uh, when I got the Florida job in 90, uh, obviously the team we needed to beat uh, to win the SEC was usually always the Georgia Bulldogs. We didn't play Alabama during the regular season. And then, uh, well, let's see, two years later, 1992, we added a couple of schools, Arkansas, South Carolina, I think, and then uh, had that championship game. 
So then had to start beating Alabama in the championship game. But anyway, to win the SEC, the Florida Gators usually got knocked out by the Georgia Bulldogs. And that's why we didn't have any prior to 1990. But, uh, I was fortunate as a coach that uh, we had much, much better team in 1990 and 91 uh, than the Georgia Bulldogs had. And all we had to do is make sure we were ready to go play. Uh, I think in the past, some Gator teams would sort of mentally say something bad's going to happen when we play Georgia. Uh, I think Georgia had won 15 of the last 20 games against the Gators in the 70s and 80s. Uh, But we just mentally – said, we are better than those guys, now let's go play like it. And uh, and then we started getting a little upper edge on Georgia after winning, you know, several years in a row. No doubt about it. Uh, Florida, four straight SEC championships. Haven't even seen Alabama do that during their dynasty. I mean, that's quite a run. And, of course, I was covering Tennessee, so I saw a lot of that success against the Tennessee Vols. You know, Coach, you're kind of known for as much as you're known for the the offensive genius and the fun and gun. You're also kind of known for your quips. And when we were talking about that uh, off uh, off camera, off stage uh, a little bit, you know, there was actually a little bit of strategy to that. There was a little bit more to it than just being funny. Um, you actually had some strategy to that. I wanted wanted to know if you'd be willing to share some of that strategy with those quips. Oh, I don't I don't know how much strategy was involved. Uh, most of all my little corny jokes uh, occurred during the summer when we had those gator clubs all over the state. I did like 21, 22 gator clubs in uh, June and July. You know, we play golf during the day and then meet up with a bunch of gators. Uh, usually, you know, if it's Orlando, there might be four or 500 come out, you know, and uh, the big, bigger cities, uh, bigger crowds. Uh, but they, they always want to hear something funny about, usually Georgia or Tennessee or FSU or whoever. And um, so we'd say something funny. And and if the other teams want to say something funny about the Gators, that was fine with us, I guarantee you. I, I never got upset at what any other coach said. So it was just uh, it was just off-season making things light a little bit. Uh, but if they want to get mad at us, that doesn't bother me at all. I, I don't think getting mad at your opponent is going to help you to win. I think you can have some some fire, obviously, but just being mad over some something corny somebody said, I don't think will, will help you beat the other team. Yeah, in fact, you almost wonder if it was a bit of a distraction. Teams get a little hung up thinking too much about the Gators in the off season instead of maybe the preparation. You know, one of the things I, I think was you able- can talk. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you can talk too much about your opponent sometimes, and then all of a sudden the game gets here and. Well, let's see, we've been talking about these guys for um, a month or two or all year, uh, and then maybe you don't play your best. And I think, I I really think that may have happened to Clemson a bit uh, when we were able to beat the most five years in a row at South Carolina, Uh, because Dabo had some good teams uh, during those years, but they they did not play well against us. They they dropped punts, uh, have all kind of fumbles and stuff, and we were pretty error-free. Uh, during those five years in a row that we were able to beat them. Yeah, that was a pretty remarkable uh, stretch run. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the time that you were at South Carolina, obviously also very successful. You know, one of the things I was able to do through the football writers organization, something I wanted to do for a long time, 
was was name an award the coaches the first year coaches award after you it's going to be known as the, the Steve Spurrier award and when you and I first discussed it you said you you kind of like that angle of it being a coach who's in his first year to school as someone who had a lot of success share why you like the concept of the Spurrier award yeah Mike I think uh most coaches, uh, when they get a job, they try to downplay their team and try to say this is going to take three or four years to build this thing back up and all that. When in actuality, there, there's a lot of good players, I think, in almost every school. And now some schools are obviously pretty light and uh, need several years of recruiting. But a lot of teams are, are in pretty good shape. And, uh, and all it takes is a coach to come in and really – get the guys believing, hey, we're good enough to beat those other guys we play. Uh, now let's go do it. So uh, those coaches that convince their guys they're good enough to go win, uh, they can do it. And uh, that's what uh, this award will be about, those first-year coaches that uh, have an outstanding year, maybe even win a conference championship. And uh, to me, they'll certainly deserve being coach of the year. Now, some of these coaches these days do different sorts of things to motivate. And of course, we, we've seen Coach Mullen wakeboarding. We see a lot of these videos of guys dancing in the locker room. Could, could you ever see yourself doing something like that back in your day as a coach? And what were some of the things maybe you did uh, to motivate your guys? Oh, we didn't do much motivating, I don't think, uh, in the locker room per se. Uh, during the week, uh, we would say what we needed to say. And I'm like a lot of coaches. I really believe uh, your motivation and your preparation, you know, starts early in the week and you let it build up uh, through the game. And then when the game's over, then you take a, a deep breath and uh, celebrate a little bit, hopefully, if you won the game. If not, you just got to suck it up and uh, and then get ready for your next opponent, uh, maybe the next Monday and so forth but we uh we tried to prepare through the week and then uh when the game uh came on saturday uh there wasn't a lot of emotion i don't think uh in the locker room before games uh after the game oh i might hug a bunch of guys but uh no we didn't do all that dancing that they like to do now <laughs> you know we were talking a minute ago about the about the times you played uh, against georgia and you know some of the relationships you built you know talking with mark rick now i know he holds you in high regard and he had a lot of really nice things to say about the spurrier award and then when coach rick recently disclosed the the parkinson's you were one of the very first people um you know to send the condolences what what was the relationship like with rick because you guys went against one another when he was at florida state a little bit as an assistant too right yeah, they beat us more than we beat them, that's for sure, uh, when he was at FSU. Uh, but, uh, well, I think we had uh, pretty much a normal relationship as far as, uh, you know, opposite team coaches and so forth. I would see him uh, at the SEC meetings. Uh, that was about it. I don't think Mark played much golf, so I didn't see him at any golf tournaments in the off season. <laughs> so... Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, Mark's a really wonderful uh, person. Uh, obviously, I think he's very close to Coach Bowden and uh, said a lot of really wonderful things about Coach Bowden when he passed away here several weeks ago. And, uh, yeah, Mark, uh, yeah, I hope he's doing okay with that Parkinson's. I, I think there's some medicines now that really can help people. So uh, hopefully he's doing well. 
Well, one Georgia coach that does play golf and also wears a visor, as you noted, when I first asked you about Kirby a couple of years ago, the first thing you said is he wears a visor. So you got a little bit of a soft spots for him. But first, who, who's a better golfer? Is Kirby, who wins a golf match? I know you guys were at that golf deal in Birmingham together this offseason. Weren't you at Birmingham or Atlanta? Well, they have one at Reynolds Plantation. I see him there a lot. Uh, I, it's it's mostly a team event uh, at those uh, things. I'm sure he could probably beat me now. Uh, back in my day as, as a a pretty good golfer, though. Uh, I, I don't know what his handicap is. I think he only plays a little bit during the summer months. But, uh, yeah, I like uh, Coach Kirby. I like the way he wears that visor all the time. I don't know if the Georgia people give gave him any crap about it, but he's a visor guy. In fact, I like all those visor guys out there in the coaching profession. Right. Is there anything about Kirby that, that stands out to you? Obviously, he came out of the – the Nick Saban system, but he's a young guy like you. I think he's now 45 going into year six. You mentioned the visor, uh, maybe a little brash. Um, I don't know. Do you, what are your impressions and thoughts on Kirby this early in his career? Well, he's done very well. He hasn't hit the top yet. He's, he's got teams that are always capable. So they're, they're probably going to hit the top <laughs> pretty soon. I still feel sorry for all the Georgia Bulldogs when Tua hit that pass on, what was it, second and 28 or nine, something like that. Uh, that, that was a hard one, but uh, uh, they'll bounce back from it. And he's he's got a team this year that possibly could go all the way. Uh, so we'll have to see how it plays out. But, uh, yeah, when you have strong, powerful teams the way uh, he's built them, uh, pretty soon, they're probably going to get to the top of the pile here pretty soon. Well, the guy that's been between Georgia and the top of the pile is Nick Saban. And you're no stranger to Saban. You were three and one against Nick Saban. You, you beat him at LSU twice when you were with the Gators. And then you beat him when you were at South Carolina. In fact, you're the last SEC East Division coach to beat Nick Saban. That was, that was a minute ago. What do you think teams need to do to beat Nick Saban? And why did you have so much success against him? Well, when we beat him, when he was at LSU now, he was not considered uh, one of the all-time greats or whatever you guys call him now, whatever it is. That was way back in uh, uh, 2000 and 2001. I think, uh, I think 2000 was his first year there. So we actually beat them uh, pretty good. But uh, in 2001, even though we beat them, they came back, won the Western Division, and won the SEC that year. They beat Tennessee after Tennessee upset us the last game of the season. So uh, uh, his uh, – and he won a national championship at LSU, what, two years later, I guess. Yeah. So uh, uh, when we were beating them those years, uh, he was not <laughs> considered the greatest coach uh, like people uh, consider him now. So uh, anyway, the uh, the game we had with him in Columbia uh, was by far the best game uh, our quarterback, Stephen Garcia, had his entire career. And uh, we did. We played an almost near-perfect game, and they didn't play very well. Greg McElroy got sacked seven times. Uh, uh, they, they had a turnover or two. They missed an extra point. They had a lot of just bad things happen, and, you know, we had a really, really good uh, game, and that's how you pull a big upset. 
And coach, it wasn't too long ago you were on the sidelines coaching one of them professional leagues. I think, as you said, you know, uh, or I think, as I said, you, you probably would have been coach of the year in that league, too. You were seven and one. And the reason I bring that up is Nick Saban turned 70 this year. And, and now these head coaches in college have to do so much. Uh, how much longer could a guy go like that? And, you know, I guess there's part of me that still wonders why you're not uh, on somebody's sideline or in somebody's <laughs> booth as an analyst. Uh, well, he can go a lot, a lot more years. Uh, Nick is in excellent health. He's been the same size, uh, physically. I think his weight's been the same for the last 50 years, probably. So he, he's got a lot of years ahead of him and, uh, yeah, his lifestyle is, is very healthy. So, uh, he, he can go, oh, I don't know, another 10 years if he wants to probably, and he may do it. Uh, I remember one time he told me I, I wouldn't know what else to do if I wasn't coaching. And uh, so I, I think he's got a lot of years left. And as long as they have the number one recruiting class in America, <laughs> I, he's got a lot of years left. No doubt. No doubt. You know, one yeah. of the teams that's gotten in his way a couple of times is Dabo Sweeney in the Clemson Tigers. And obviously mm -hmm. Dabo uh, has done a great job building that program down there in Clemson. But when you were at South Carolina, you went six and four against Clemson and you beat Dabo in the Tigers five straight years at one point in that rivalry. How in the world were you able to do that at South Carolina against, against the Clemson that we know? Mm -hmm. Well, again, we had really good teams between 2010 and 13. And then the 2009 game, we played extremely well, and they did not play very well. But, uh, yeah, we sort of got a little mental edge on them there for a while. And, again, they would – have a lot of turnovers and we had very few uh, we just played better uh, and uh, a lot of our guys had some of their best games uh, so it was uh, it was a good run there but I think Dabo's won six in a row <laughs> uh, since uh, 2014 I believe it is so he's he's uh, I think he's either even or ahead of the Gamecocks uh, right now he mentioned recently that when he lost to Georgia in 2014, which is the last time South Carolina's lost, or excuse me, last time Clemson's lost a regular season game to an SEC team, he said you left a voicemail for him. What what led you to dial up a rival coach and, and give him that little bit of consolation? That's interesting. Oh, I did leave him a voicemail. Oh, I halfway forgot about it. What did I tell him? It wasn't anything. Well, something about, I guess your team lost too. I guess you stunk it up too or something. Oh, that yeah, effect. we lost also. Yeah, we lost also. And I, I think I just, uh, I don't even know what I said. What did I say to him? He just said he saved the voicemail out of consolation. You know, the fact that, you know, Steve Spurrier would call him up and leave a message like that. I mean, it is kind of interesting. I guess you wouldn't expect to, to hear from your rival after the first week to, to console you. Uh, I just wonder if it was more of that art of war stuff you like to practice. No, no, no. Dabo's a good, I, I think Dabo's a good friend. I, I consider him a good friend. And uh, we, we had, you know, a little sort of chirping at each other when we were both coaching in, in the state of South Carolina, because that's a huge rivalry, Clemson and South Carolina. Those fans do not like to lose to the other team. I can tell you that right now. And, uh, uh, when I see some Gamecocks and they say, Coach, I was there between 10 and 14 and 9 and 13, uh, they got a smile on their face because they know we beat Clemson those years. So, uh, 
And then every now and then I see a, a Clemson person that said I was at Clemson when we never beat you guys, and it was no fun. So it's it is a big rivalry in the state of South Carolina, and uh, of course Clemson owns it right now. But I guess the Gamecocks we we had our day there between uh, 2009 and 2013. When you see an opening game matchup like like Georgia against Clemson, like we're going to see in Charlotte, North mm-hmm. Carolina. Um, you know, when you think of keys to the game, and I know you don't sit around breaking down film of these teams, but just kind of off the top of your head, what are some of your thoughts on a matchup like this, this early between programs like this? Yeah, simply who plays the best, who plays without, you know, bad plays and careless plays, things of that nature. Uh, Crucial turnovers can really hurt. You know, if you throw a 50-yard pass and they intercept it falling down, that, that doesn't hurt you. There's no no harm in that, uh, but the crucial turnovers are, and, and mistakes can cost you the game. But I think it'll come down to who plays the best, who makes the most plays. You know, maybe a long touchdown pass, great catch here and there, or, or maybe a defensive play. Who knows? But that should be the game of the week in the nation, I think, Clemson and Georgia. Uh, so I'll certainly be, be looking forward to watching that one. Do you ever play, and now we're in this playoff era, and I go back and I think about some of those Gator teams, maybe even a South Carolina team or two, four-team playoff, 12-team playoff. Do you like that? I remember you weren't necessarily a proponent of the SEC championship at first, but do you like where this is going? Well, I was sort of thinking eight teams might get it done, but now they it looks like they want to go to 12, which is another week in there. Uh, I, I hope it doesn't kill the bowl system. Uh those people, I think, have been really good for college football. And uh, so maybe they can have the playoff games in, in, in the bowls and keep uh, most of those going. But, uh, yeah, football had been the only sport without a playoff system. Now we we had a two-team uh, back in the late 90s, I guess. And then we had the four-team. And uh, now maybe all the way to twelve. So, yeah, I think it's uh, it's good for a lot of teams to be able to get into the playoffs instead of the same four almost every year. And we know all know who those four are. So it, it may be really good for college football to have some uh, some new teams in there. I don't know if you know or not, Mike, you know who the last team to win the national championship for the first time in school history was? The last? No, I don't. I do not. The last team that won it for the first time ever in school history was the 96 Florida Gators. That means every year after that, a team had already won it before in the history of their school. So it's been all repeat winners since 96. And, uh, you know, in basketball this year, Baylor uh, came in there and won it. And how about Mississippi state winning the national championship in baseball? Now there's that to me, when the sport, gives everybody a chance maybe to have that one big year. I just think it's really good for that sport. That's pretty fast. I didn't know that because it's pretty good. Fascinating. And that is kind of the thought, I guess, of spreading it around. getting yeah. Somebody called, called me a while back and told me that. So I, I thought it was pretty <laughs> neat that uh, the 96 Florida first time in school history. And we haven't heard anybody say that in football since then. No, we'll have to bring that up. But now, you know, Texas and Oklahoma are joining the SEC, and they might even move the division around. Are we going to see Texas and Oklahoma 
take over the league? Do you think this is a significant addition here? I tell you what, Mike, Oklahoma believes they can certainly play with us. I know uh, they clobbered my Gators in the Sugar Bowl. I mean, several of our guys opted out, and they played their all their guys. But Oklahoma is a tradition-rich football program, as we know. And they, they're not afraid of anybody in the SEC. So they're looking forward to the challenge. Uh, Texas, I think it helps them. Uh, Texas A&M, they'll start playing each other again. And uh, maybe it'll help Texas also. You made a recent prediction. You just brought up the Gators. You made a recent prediction caused a lot of waves because not many people pick against Nick Saban. But, heck, I guess if you beat him enough like you have, you can. You, you predicted uh, Florida was going to upset Alabama. What were some of the things that made you feel like the Gators might get one? Because I had absolutely nothing to lose by saying that. <laughs> uh, I tell you what, though, Mike, it, it is going to be a, uh, a loud swamp. Uh, I think it's a 3.30 game. Uh, Alabama historically does not come here much. I think uh, – I don't know the last time they came. It was a few years back. So uh, we had a big win over Alabama in 1991, exactly 30 years ago. Uh, in fact, we've been 35 to nothing. I don't know if you know that or not, but that was the power of the swamp uh, and the fans and our players just believing that we play so much better and we can beat anybody down here in the swamp. Uh, of course, after that game, Alabama went on a 22-game win streak. Uh, Gene Stallings and his guys uh, won all the rest of them and then won every game, I think, in the 92 season also. So, anyway... Uh, it, it'll be you, a huge game down here, and the fans are all looking forward to it. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm trying to think. You went a few years before you lost an SEC game in the Swamp, didn't you? Uh, I th we didn't lose many. I th Auburn won a couple, uh, won one, and Alabama beat us 40 to 39 there that one year. Yeah. Uh, then lost one to Tennessee, uh, maybe three, three in 12 years. <laughs> That's, that's that's not uh coach that's not too bad man listen hey yeah. i've taken up a lot of your time i i appreciate you coming i know the georgia fans uh appreciate your perspective and certainly it's a, it's a badge of honor when you got all these fan bases that said man i couldn't stand it when we played the spurrier with the gators or with the gamecocks and, you know but to hear you talk about how yeah. those rivalries went mm -hmm. and what it meant to you mm -hmm. uh, that, it's kind of interesting yeah. to hear kind of the other side of that yeah, I tell you what, Mike, we're having a reunion of the Tennessee week, September 24-25 this year, of our 95 and 96 team. We sort of do it every 25 years if you just win a conference championship. And so both of those teams uh, are – actually, both those teams are the only two in school history uh, to go 9-0 and in SEC play. We won all of our conference games, and the 95 team – uh, went undefeated in the regular season and won the SEC. And then, of course, the 96 team, we were fortunate after losing at FSU. Some teams ranked ahead of us all lost, and we got a rematch with FSU and uh, were able to win the, that national championship that year. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, those reunions are fun, and uh, – I used to tell players all the time, now, if we win a championship, man, we'll celebrate it the rest of our lives. So this is a chance to do that uh, uh, that weekend.
Yeah, I don't think you're gonna have many Tennessee fans coming in there, though, Coach. I don't know if you're gonna bring in much out of town business. Oh, today. they'll 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 have some that maybe want to come to Florida, <laughs> but it will be uh, it's early though, so it, it will not. Uh, it'll be a good hot day uh, most likely. Would you ever want to see Georgia play in this? I know you played once in Sanford Stadium as a as a coach. Do you think we'll ever get to see a, a Georgia Florida game in the swamp? I know you favor Jacksonville, Coach. They came they came in '94. And then we went up there in 95. So, in fact, there was a uh, – you'll have to ask Coach Goff. It was sort of interesting. We beat them – gosh, I think we had four turnovers for touchdowns that night. But uh, we're out there warming up. And uh, lightning, you know how lightning comes well all over the south. But anyway, so the referees sent us in pregame warm-ups. Uh, so, you guys – you know, going to the locker room, we got a lightning delay, maybe. So the referee comes and tells us, hey, we're kicking off in 10 minutes or 15 minutes, 10 minutes. So we went running out there. We loosened up, ran around a little bit. And the Bulldogs are nowhere around. Somebody forgot to tell them what time we were kicking off. And uh, it seemed like referee ran into the visitor's locker room and said, we're kicking off in one minute or something. So uh, Coach Ray Goff had to hey kickoff team let's go uh so i don't know it was something like that but there was some confusion uh, about the start and uh and then the bulldogs just had a very tough day offensively that night any favorite memories any when i you know you and you've got a ton of my senior restaurant you got all those helmets up my goodness i didn't realize you coached at all those programs or played at all but when we talk about the steve spurrier legacy what 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 yeah. means to mean the most to you what moments Oh, really all of them, uh, starting uh, in my college career at Duke. I mean, I coached the Tampa Bay Bandits there for all three years of the USFL. And uh, we, we had some winning teams every year and uh, some really good teams. But, uh, yeah, there's too many to count. But probably one of the most proud of, Mike, is uh, our teams, uh, you know, were always uh, competitive. And uh, even the years we didn't win the championship, we were up there fighting for it. And, uh, and and the guys, uh, even when we had a loss or two here and there, uh, we bounced back and uh, finished the season strongly. So, you know, we won uh, here at Florida. We won between 9 and 12 every year. We didn't even have one of those 8 and 4s or anything like that. So that was, uh, I think, uh, sort of a testimony to the players and the leadership we had on the team and so forth. Yep. No doubt about it. Florida coach. All right, Mike. Coach. All right, my man. Listen, I'm looking forward to having the uh, banquet for the uh, coach of the year. First, uh, we got a bunch of coaches out there in their first year. You know, we got a lot of candidates. So uh, it all starts this weekend. I'll be keeping an eye on them and you you keep an eye on them also. OK, we'll stay on top of the coach. I appreciate you coming on the program tonight. OK, Mike. Good talking to you. Bye bye. Great stuff. Coach Steve Spurrier. Uh, national championship coach, a dominator of uh, Tennessee, Georgia, Clemson. Uh, you know, Spurrier left a lot of great programs in his wake. And uh, you can just tell talking to him. I mean, he's a pretty confident guy. Um, you know, he's kind of done it his way. I I've got an appreciation for that. You know, I've covered enough other programs that played Spurrier and the Gators. And I've, I've seen a lot of his greatest games. Uh, I got to see Alabama beat him. Uh, I saw Alabama lose to him. Saw Auburn beat him at the Swamp, that game he was referencing in 1994. Uh, I saw the uh, 
the uh, what they called the choke at the doke. Uh, you know, Gators and the Seminoles ended up in a 34-34 tie. Kind of thought the whistle went against Coach Spurrier and the Gators in the second half when FSU made a comeback. And just a guy you can't help uh, but really uh, respect the success that he's had. And, you know, doggone it, if it was your team playing him, you couldn't stand him. Uh, but for the play, for the coaches and, and for the players and the fans that were on Coach Spurrier's side, they absolutely love him. And, and so now there's a Spurrier Award that will go to the best first-year coach in the country. And there'll be some uh, awarded retroactively to coaches that had great first years and, uh, you know, probably even see a Georgia coach on that list at some point. So it was cool for Coach Spurrier to come on knowing that, you know, hey, this is a, a, the dognation.com on the beat show, well aware Georgia fans out there, but he loves the SEC. You could tell, uh, you could tell the memories, the photographic memory that Coach Spurrier has. It's impressive. And you can tell the respect. Remember what he said, that the reason that Florida hadn't won any national titles was because of the Georgia Bulldogs getting in their way. You know, he identified Georgia early on as the program that he needed to beat to get over the hump. And he did make that game in the Tennessee game special for Florida Gators. We've had Chris Doring on the program before, and he explained how Florida built those guys up. And those comments, he was, he was being a little modest. I've talked to him off the air before. Those comments he knew had the potential to be a distraction for programs. And, and I think Coach Spurrier is a brilliant tactician, not just from an X's and O's standpoint, but from a psychological standpoint. I think he knew exactly what he was doing to get his teams at their best. And those Gators were a confident bunch. Uh, now, you've heard me take Dan Mullen to task recently for saying eight and four is a great season. And I was on a Florida program last week, and I had to explain to him, look, that's not great by Florida standards any more than winning eight games is great by Georgia standards. You would not hear Kirby Smart say that eight and four is a great season. You would never hear Steve Spurrier say that eight and four is a great season. In fact, he just pointed out that he never won fewer than nine, and they played a much more condensed schedule than Florida's playing now. So when I think about the all-time great coach, and when I think about the Mount Rushmore of SEC coaches, Steve Spurrier, Paul Bear Bryant, and Nick Saban are the three coaches that I start with. And, and you, you got to put Saban up there. You got to put him up there. But Paul Bear Bryant and, and then Steve Spurrier, he's got to be up there. He was an innovator. What he did was different than the rest. And you've heard me preach this before on the program, and I'm going to say it again just because it meant so much to me in my career. When I asked Steve Spurrier in 1994, what made him a great football coach? And he said, there are two ways to be successful in life. You can do it like everyone else and work harder and longer, or you could do things differently. He does things differently. And he was still winning a couple of years ago. This guy can flat out coach. It doesn't matter where you put him. Steve Spurrier was a winner. Now, I don't know what happened with the Redskins. The talk that I hear from NFL people was that NFL players wouldn't go along with different. They weren't signing up for that. They weren't buying in. The NFL is somewhat homogenous. Everyone does it the same way, and they weren't willing to buy into some of the different things that Spurrier was trying to get done. Now, that's what I was told. Now, from Coach Spurrier, he takes that one on the chin. You hear it. When he loses, he owns it. He owned those two losses to the Georgia Bulldogs. You could hear a little pain in his voice 
when he talked about losing to Georgia his senior year in a game that would have enabled him to win the SEC championship. Players don't ever forget games like that. And Coach Spurrier is a competitor. And that's another thing about him, whether it was on the football field or on the grid or on the golf course. You know, he wasn't going to give it up to Kirby. He said, well, maybe he beat me now. But when he was a pretty, he didn't finish the sentence or the sentiment, but he was basically saying he wouldn't have beat me, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And I don't know what that relationship is like between Kirby Smart and Steve Spurrier. You think about this. Uh, Coach Spurrier was at Florida when Kirby Smart was being recruited out of South Georgia. And, uh, and I'm not really sure if there's any, I don't believe there's any, animal. I don't have any reason to believe that. Um, you know, Coach uh, Kirby Smart is very respectful of former coaches. I remember last year I was doing a special piece on the late great Pat Dye, former Georgia Bulldog, and of course an Auburn coaching legend. And I asked Kirby for a comment, and he didn't send a comment, but he did one better. He sent a family heirloom of an autograph that, that his family and he got from Coach Pat Dye from way back in the day when he was at a camp. And, and it meant something to Coach Smart that his family held on to it so long. So Kirby Smart, went, you know, he didn't really grow up watching a lot of college football. He'll tell you that. He was more into the high school football. But he's a guy who has a lot of respect for the college football legends. And, um, you know, the fact that he wears a visor, I think is kind of interesting. I'm, like you heard, Coach Spurrier really likes that. He really does. He gets a kick out of it. And he's glad that the Georgia fans don't give Kirby too much trouble for the visor. But you think about the visor and that was kind of the, you know, that's kind of the Spurrier trademark symbol. When we think about coaches wearing visors, you think about um, uh, Steve Spurrier. And now you wonder if maybe Kirby Smart can recreate some of that visor magic. You know, when Georgia won three straight SEC East Division titles, nobody else in SEC history had done that except for Steve Spurrier, when he won four straight SEC championships, something that Nick Saban hasn't even done. And you just can't ignore the record, folks. You just can't ignore him being three and one against Saban, him beating Dabo Sweeney five times in a row. Um, you know, and you heard him boil the game down. It's simple. You know, we're looking at this match. It's who plays better. And to me, that comes down to execution. And as I continue to shrink that down, the things that make you play better at the line of scrimmage, you keep your quarterback clean and protected so he's not under duress, less likely to make a mistake. That's why I take George in this game. The team that can run the ball a little bit more, make it a little bit harder for the defense to put you in position to make those mistakes, Kendall Milton and Georgia. So a lot of great talk tonight, a lot of fun. I'm really glad that you joined me on the Ingles on the Beat program. Really glad.